Good morning, everyone. We are in Proverbs chapter 17. We left off at verse 10. And we are coming up to the end of this section at verse 24 of this chapter. We'll be finished with this section, which following Steinman, we've referred to as advice to a wise son. We'll pick back up where we left off with a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. From evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so part of the reason why we listen to the scriptures, read the scriptures, study the scriptures, listen to the scriptures as they're preached and explained to us, it's the same reason we listen to wise Christian people, their counsel, their experience, their wisdom, their perspective. We listen for correction, and that correction is more valuable than gold or silver. And so this idea of a rebuke or a correction goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Of course, nobody likes to be corrected. We all like to wake up in the morning and be right about everything. That's just not how it works. The sinful flesh is by nature wrong. And so a whole life of being corrected by the scriptures is what ultimately leads us to Christian wisdom. And then as it accumulates to becoming men of understanding. All right, then on to the new material at verse 11, a new proverb. An evil man seeks only rebellion and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Okay, so an evil man seeks only rebellion. Why is that? What's at the heart of an evil man who always wants to throw off authority? It's rebellion against God, of course. It's rebellion against the offices. Now, I'm sorry? Anger. Yeah, very often accompanied by anger and wrath and... Uh, despising authority, despising hierarchy, despising God, all of these things. But what does he want to replace it with? Himself. That's the key. That's the secret. So all rebellion is self-serving. All despising of authority is because I want to be the chief authority. And so so much of our egalitarianism and our non-authoritarianism is just crowning the self and crowning selfishness as if it were the summum bonum or highest good. So an evil man seeks only rebellion. Then what would a good man do? A good man would seek to honor those authorities whom God has put in place. In the family, that's the husband, the head of the family. As husbands in this culture, we have to honor the authority that God has given us and be subversive and be rebellious against the culture around us says, hey, men, your job is to sit on the couch and be quiet. 
Your job is to pay the bills and then come home and let your wife lead things. Your, your job as a husband is uh, to be the head of the house as long as the wife is the neck that turns the head. And so on and so forth. So part of what we have to do as men in this day and age is regain a biblical understanding of our office as head of the household. Even in a section where mothers and fathers are both described uniquely and individually in their roles, it is still charged unto the father specifically that he raise children in the faith and train them up in the way they should go. So regaining that biblical understanding of our own authority and then enacting that in such a way that we're not lording it over those in our family, least of all our wives, but we're not lording it over them, but we're exercising authority in a godly way. And then likewise, that we see authority in the civil sphere and honor it and see authority in the ecclesiastical sphere and honor it, both of which are difficult. Because the ecclesiastical sphere has largely abdicated any sense of authority because we want to be people pleasers. We want everybody to love us. And so we refuse to see ourselves as having any authority or there being any hierarchy. And so to pander and to score points with you all, we diminish and dishonor the office of Christ and the authority therein. Again, when we're talking about authority, please just assume it's not authority that is like a lording over. It's not dictatorial. It's not the kind of authority of the, of the Gentiles. When you think of Emperor Palpatine, that's not the model. So we can make a distinction, but just because we make a distinction between one kind of authority and another doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater and say all authority is bad. If we do that, then we're an evil man who seeks only rebellion. Okay, so we've got authority in the church, and then we've got authority in the state. And, of course, we've spent a lot of time talking about that here because what happens when the authority of the state's corrupt happens when the authority of the state is being used and abused contrary to the scriptures. That's something we have to wrestle with and have to continue to wrestle with because we want to pray for those who are in office. We want to love those who are in office. We want to submit to those who are in office. And when they step outside of their office, conduct their office in a way that's contrary to to the very nature of that office or to the biblical description of that office, well, we want to call that out. And we want to be, um, we want to handle that in a Christian way. And of course, where civil authorities or ecclesiastical authorities or the authority of the husband in a house, where, where that authority commands something that God forbids or forbids something that God commands, then of course we obey God and not man. So that thread runs through all three of these estates. Okay, a cruel messenger will be uh, sent against him. And of course, we can think of countless examples of this, uh, biblically speaking, where rebellion has overtaken the people of God in the Old Testament, and you have everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, and you even see the kings abdicating their authority and no longer seeing themselves in submission to the authority of, of God. Of course, that's even innate in their desire to have a king. You remember all of this? 
and this sort of thing that Samuel laments, that they desire to have a king rather than God. So God sends the prophets against them, uh, speaking messages of judgment and messages of wrath, lest they... And, and begging them to repent and return to what's right, lest they be destroyed. Okay, so I think, biblically, we have that sense. Um, and that continues. I mean, that's a, lot of the, that's a lot of the ministry of the church, too. God continues to send messengers out who speak cruel messages against those who are in open rebellion. All right, anything you want to say about uh, 11? Otherwise, I'm content to mosey along. There's, are we running a microphone today? Okay, we've got one all the way up in the front. You all stretched out, limbered up, ready to go? Yeah, oh, just right up here. Yeah. Did you notice that a cheetah, so I got this, I got this from uh, Coach Prime. Did anybody see the Buffalo game yesterday? Yeah. Ah, oh, it's medicine. Just medicine to the soul. But Coach Prime's got this interesting thing on his wall. It says a cheetah never stretches before it goes to get its prey. Now, I like that. I just saw it for the first time yesterday, so I'm going to try that out. No more stretching. See how that goes for me. <laughs> just dead sprint right after my son. See if, uh, if I end up in a wheelchair, getting wheeled in here, you'll know what happened. Yeah, please. All right. What you're saying about the office of the women and the men are very biblical regarding the household. Is there a distinction about the workforce? Mm, yeah. So the workforce, as I understand it, would largely fall under the civil side of things. Okay? And it is treated biblically and then like in the table of duties and the small catechism under the heading of uh, masters and slaves or um, later on, of course, employers and employees. Properly speaking, you'd lodge that in the civil estate for, I think, reasons that are obvious enough. Uh, and there is an authority structure there to serve our... So, again, the Bible's just really kind of non-embarrassed about these things, the way we're all embarrassed today, which should be a tell. Maybe we're not seeing things the way the Bible's seeing things. But when we get all embarrassed about the master-slave thing, the Bible's just completely unembarrassed by it. It's like, yeah, slaves, treat your masters as if they were Christ. Which is the golden thread that runs through all the vocations. You're serving the people around you not because they're worthy of it, per se, but because you are serving Christ. So you serve your wife, you serve your husband, you serve your children, they serve their parents, you serve your employers, they serve their employees, all because this is the form in which we serve Christ. You can think of this in a very specific verse that pertains to the office of the ministry. But you can just see the golden thread there and then see it expand through all the other vocations. But remember what Jesus says to Peter at the end of John's Gospel. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, well worship me or serve me. But he says, feed my Sheep. So we show love to Christ by loving our neighbor, and that's the golden thread that runs through all of vocation. And Paul's, Paul frequently mentions that in his writings on vocation. 
So, right, we want to, uh, and then, yeah, employers need to treat their employees well. Masters need to treat their slaves well because we are all free men in Christ. There is no hierarchy along those lines in Christ. And, of course, then we recognize that it's all temporary. It's all a temporary arrangement. I think that's one of the reasons why God's not so wound up about it, the way we get wound up about it. Life's going to, pardon me for being so crass, life's going to suck in one way or another for you. What's, what, ultimately, what's the difference if it sucks this way or that way? <laughs> now, of course, as we uh, gives us opportunity to reflect on what we covered last week, back at verse 3, that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. And so, whether you're born into this world as a slave or born into this world as a master, whether you're born into this world and you become some great civil leader or you're just nobody or whether you're born to be some great theologian and bishop or you're just a menial uh, pastor or church worker I mean, we all get the crucible because God loves us and so your station and status in life just isn't ultimately all that important I mean it is in the sense that God's given it to you he's prepared it for you. He's prepared you for it. He's going to work through it. I mean, I'm not trying to undercut any of those things and how important they are. But at the end of this short life, we're all going to have our roles. We're all going to have our scars. And the point is that God, through the crucible of this life, is refining us. And through the furnace of this life is removing our impurities from us. And he can do that just as easily in the master-slave relationship as he can do in the employer-employee relationship as he can do in the father and Children. children. Parents and children. Well, yeah, women are women are the master and the second. Oh, you're talking about like employers, employees. Yeah, yeah I mean, there is something, frankly, that's there that's um, a bit against the order of creation. So it's going to be awkward. It just is. It's awkward to have a, a woman boss. I, you know, if you find yourself in that situation... What, do you, what are you supposed to do? You honor the authority, you, you be a good employee, that's what you do. But is it, should we ignore the fact that it's going to be awkward? Of course it's awkward. How could it not be awkward? I get accused of sexism and racism both in one class here. <laughs> that's great. Fine with it. You know, we have to get fine with that because that's how the world's going to accuse us for upholding the biblical principles. Uh, you're, gonna get, you're just going to have these things thrown at you. You're, you're a fascist, a sexist, a racist, just whatever hateful. You know? You're a bigot. You're a thisophobe or a thatophobe. You've got to get over it. Just don't care. You know, what you really need to realize is that these are slurs from a false religion that is from, from stem to tip, contrary to Christ, contrary to the word of God, and you're a heretic, and you're going to get labeled by their words for blaspheming their system, which... Christians have a long and robust tradition of blaspheming pagans, <coughs> blaspheming pagan systems. So we should embrace that. I'm all for it. Great. Okay. Anything else we want to chat about? So then, 12, let a man, <laughs> let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Hmm. We wouldn't think about it like that. But a fool in his folly is 
more deadly, not even equally deadly, more deadly than a she-bear robbed of her cubs. That's the point, the peril that it puts you in. So that will become even clearer as we transition to the next section, which, uh, again, Steinman is loosely titled A Foolish Son, Avoiding Fools and Foolishness. And so this is a foretaste of that feast to come, namely that when we look at fools operating in their foolishness, we see it as contagious, dangerous, and ultimately deadly. So you've got to close your ears to the junk. Sometimes that just means turning off the news, turning off your phone, not following that account anymore, uh, whatever the case may be. You know, you've got to be careful. Some of... Um, some of the laments of the fall of our civilization, which is synonymous with its fall away from Christianity and Christian structure, uh, some of the laments of the, of the fall of the church and the apostasy within the greater church in the West are borderline uh, gloating and loving and enjoying it. That is 100% wicked, evil, and toxic to your soul. Especially if you're finding these, you know, Often they present themselves, especially in the church, as like, oh, this is what the church is suffering from, so this is what the church needs to do, or else it's going to die. <sighs> Flee away from that poison as fast as you can, because first of all, Christ guarantees us that the church isn't going to die. So it's predicated upon this whole fear-based thing, and they're selling you something, and that something is 100% going to be foolishness. So get rid of that. And I think the same is true, this kind of glorying in the fall of the West and this glorying in, in the falling away from Christianity um, that sometimes is done with this, uh, with this oh, oh isn't, this, isn't this horrible, but, but now here's what we, how we can live amongst the ruins happily. Just hogwash, as far as I'm concerned. I, we should be standing strong and true on the word of God and speaking those principles unashamed, unabashed and not capitulating to the false sorrow and the people seeking to you know show this false sorrow and then lead us into some form of foolishness or another okay there's a hand all the way in the back uh something that may be in here that isn't quite so obvious is I've spent a lot of time wandering around in the woods. And when you're doing that in bear country, you're alert for bears. And you don't want to get between a she-bear and her cubs. Um, On the other hand, we're probably not always as alert as we should be for fools. Mm -hmm. So this might be a warning along those lines to be alert for fools out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great point. Great point. That's, yeah, very well said. And again, I, I mean, just to be clear here, what we're really talking about when we're talking about fools isn't just, you know, people who are dumb or people who, you know, have a low IQ or something. But we're looking for people who are unfaithful, who are, I mean, to put it in other terms, who are believing the lies and speaking the lies and trying to convince us of the lies. That would be a better way to think of fools and their foolishness and how deadly that is. So to guard ourselves, to be patient with individuals, of course, but impatient with the lie itself, intolerant of the lie itself. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, 13, if anyone returns evil 
for good. Evil will not depart from his house. Again, a not-so-subtle reminder that God is interested in our conduct and dealings and is watching and judging. This is just a really pernicious, nasty thing. I mean, if it's ever happened to you, you know how bad it hurts. Uh, You've done good and someone repays you with evil, takes advantage of your kindness or something like that. Uh, It just really sucks. And God agrees. Sorry, my tongue's so coarse today. Try not to speak so coarsely. The, uh, God agrees. That's, it's horrible. It's not just. It's not right. We want to avoid that like the plague. When it happens to us, don't worry. God sees in his own way. He will repay, and hopefully repay in a way that leads them to repent. Okay, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. So I think the sense here is that what starts as a trickle quickly gets out of control and becomes a raging flood. So stop the trickle while it's still a trickle. So the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the barrel breaks out. Um, The idea of being like, as soon as you see the beginning of strife, try to nip it in the bud there, because that's going to go better than once it's all flowing, trying to stop it. Yeah, just makes good practical sense, doesn't it? That probably means we need to be proactive and uh, somewhat aggressive toward that in our lives, where we recognize that there's the beginning of strife, Head that off. Head that off as best we can. It's not going to get any easier. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm just wondering, could you tie that back in with what he was talking about earlier? I mean, on the one hand, right, we want to uh, uh, right resist foolishness, mm-hmm. right, and so on, but that could be seen as strife. So now... It, Right. Is he saying that we should just avoid all conflict? Or is he saying that we should avoid being foolish in starting conflict? Hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we have to choose. Wouldn't both be true, I think? Well, there are sometimes you just, I mean, I don't know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego did not avoid conflict. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they didn't avoid strife. They got thrown in a fiery furnace, and I think they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. I wish I, w- I would be that brave. I don't think I am. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. I'm a coward. But, uh, uh, right, that's different, isn't it, than, say, using a, uh, right, appeals to mob sen- sentiments and so on to go against uh, others. So situational application is that a way of summarizing your point or well i'm I'm just i mean the sort of a blanket uh uh uh, it looks like the the passage looks like a blanket condemnation of strife and it seems to me that there are times that you have to strive against something yeah great point i i totally agree and that's a wonderful opportunity to see these aren't absolute airtight type statements they're true insofar as they're true. And they're invitations to reflect on what ways they are true and on what ways they aren't true. I, we can just think, for example, Christ's ministry was filled with all kinds of strife. Correct. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Maybe, maybe to just kind of add a layer of generality to it, that this would be good advice for uh, much of the personal strife that goes on that's just sort of incidental and maybe isn't based on some matter of truth or some matter of God's word. Yeah. So we pick and choose our battles and where it's just kind of a general personal strife, we uh, try to nip it in the bud. That might... Uh, Pastor, please. I was just kind of looking at the notation in the study Bible, mm-hmm. talking about letting out water. Yeah, and it talks about it to let out water is to let loose the tongue <laughs> to a flux of speech. And mm-hmm. I was thinking along the lines of the beginning of strife is like letting out the water when you're in a conversation or a discussion with an individual. If you're not guarding your tongue. Mm-hmm. And it's going in a negative way, mm-hmm. then it's like letting out the floodwaters, uh, right? Uh, yeah, good and point. so, um, for example, when you're arguing with someone or debating something, mm. and it starts to go, you're at that moment where it's going to go south, right? Mm-hmm. Where your tongue's going to get the better of you, and then it's all on, and mm-hmm. then now you've got the big fight, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, learning to recognize that moment and guard your tongue and hold yourself back before it turns into something so much bigger that you can no longer contain. Yeah, great, great. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, that's a quote from Gregory the Great. He's kind of a wild man when it comes to that stuff. Vicar and I are reading him uh, together on his pastoral. It's great stuff. But, uh, yeah, I think that's a wonderful application to think of the... um, the strife, uh, strife of the lips. It's like letting out water. Be really careful. And I, you know, so often we call this venting or, you know, discussing or we have these euphemisms. It's really kind of like barbecuing someone with our lips, crucifying them with our lips. Or in the case that they're right there, it's like a full-fledged battle that's ready to happen. And yeah, probably when we've lost the intent of compassionately, you know, and again, I, I can think of exceptions to this, but say you take somebody in your family and you're compassionately trying to win them over to the truth about the time you're just lambasting them to lambast them, you've sort of lost the battle, right, in the bigger sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, the toothpaste and your words, right? You can't get them back in. Hmm. Yeah, great point. Great point. Okay, good. Anything else there? Okay. 15 then. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And again, an abomination is like this disgusting, horrific thing. So a disgusting, horrific thing is the overturning of justice. Um, An idea akin to what we just saw, returning evil for good. But here, justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous. Uh, We've got so many examples of this in our culture and in our government right now. We could spend, the, I think, probably the rest of the day citing examples and talking about examples where the, the righteous are punished, and the wicked are rewarded, and that kind of thing. Uh, it's an abomination to the Lord. And you can see that I mean, everything is under him. 
left-hand kingdom, the civil sphere, these things are under him as well and subject to him. All right, 16. Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? Yeah, and the study Bible summarizes it this way. Wisdom cannot be gained by money alone. Really, truly, by money at all. You can kind of pay for the opportunity. Only an inner desire for it is an acceptable price. Yeah, and then, you know, only an inner desire for it. That's the only thing that's going to be allow, allow you to receive and retain it. So there is an activity toward the gaining of wisdom. I mean, it all comes from God and has his origin in God. God uses means to distribute that wisdom to us. But, you know, Christ warns us, take care how you hear. And that taking care how you hear is a wonderful invitation to think about the active ways in which we learn. I think sometimes our church, because we have such a strong doctrine of the word, as do the maybe the Reformed have such a strong doctrine of the Word and God working through the Word and the Word creating faith and the Word doing all the doing that we can overstate it and miss out on the activity that Christ commands us into, taking care how we hear, the active learning, the uh, tasting and seeing that the Word of the Lord is good, the reading, marking, learning, and inwardly digesting of that word, etc. So that when we show up um, for divine service, to just give one example, we want to say, what does God have in store for me today? Which is a very different question than what do I think I need? Or how shall I, by what criteria shall I evaluate the preacher today? Those are not what God has in mind for us as hearers but that we would hear the word and that we would receive it as exactly what God has in mind for us and that we would receive that word in the same way that we receive other things that are interesting to us. You know, if you read something interesting, you think about it. If you watch a show, you talk about it. And if the show's fascinating or interesting in some way, you talk about it. And the same thing is encouraged for us to do with God's word. What a wonderful practice it is uh, for couples maybe families to have lunch after Sunday services and talk about some aspect of the service. If the sermon was a, was a miss, talk about the text. Text isn't going to miss. So you have opportunity to think about these and actively uh, take home some things that God is giving to you there. And this used to be uh, taught in the Lutheran church quite a lot. I don't hear it much anymore today. So that's something to consider as well when we're thinking about um, you know, th- this kind of strangely worded idea of why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense. You don't need money. You need sense. You need an ability to receive it. And that's what we've been discussing. All right. Anything else there? Okay. There's a hand right behind you. All this talk of foolishness uh, makes me think of a passage that I can't remember what it was, but David played the fool at some point to sort of like in self when he was. Do you, remember, you know the passage I'm talking about? I don't know. If for anybody sure. remembers that, he he acted. 
foolish or he played the fool or he acted like a madman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm only gen- yeah, I'm only generally conjuring it up in my mind right now. But there was like where he acted like he was mad. Yeah, they brought the. It has. It has something. Oh well, there's the dancing episode, but that's different. There was another where he's in enemy territory. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, he was captured or something like that. He was in these hostile forces. If anybody can pull that up, we'll read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think he pretended to be mad to get out of getting killed. Yeah, in that episode, which I guess is. Uh, Kind of ironically wise, right? Yeah, right. Be a fool and act the fool and uh, keep your life. Okay, well, if somebody finds it, let me know. We can entertain that, uh, that account from Scripture. So let's just otherwise uh, just keep moving along. 17, a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. I want to not find a contrast here. So a friend loves at all times, good times and bad times. And elsewhere in the Proverbs is this theme too, that you know a friend if they're willing to correct you. Which is ironically how, okay, as soon as you correct me, I know you're not my friend. It's just so dumb. It's the exact opposite of how the Bible presents a friend. A friend is one who loves you enough to tell you the truth because they love you and because they want what's best for you. Um, When we recognize that there are people willing to do that in in our life, our job is to immediately crucify the ego that's all worked up and, uh, oh, that person must not be my friend because they don't love me at all. And just think of that, how that's become... It's kind of in popular culture and everybody's understanding that a friend is somebody who always support, who always has your back no matter what. As you're doing the most stupid, self-destructive, family-destroying thing you can do, well, they've got my back. They're a true friend. They're not. They're complicit. <laughs> They're a fellow fool, not a friend. And they don't want what's best for you. They're willing to watch you destroy yourself. That's not a friend. A friend's going to say, hey... So a friend that loves at all times, that's great to meditate on. Um, Good times, bad times, they'll tell you the truth. And then a brother is born for adversity. So here a meditation on friendship and brotherhood and um, all kinds of meditations we can have there. Christian brother, fleshly brother, Christian friends, fleshly friends, so to speak. Reflect on the different ways in which these are true or not true. But a brother is born for adversity. The sentiment there is obviously, you know, when the going gets hard, a brother doesn't abandon you. A brother stands with you. That's the point. When things get hot, when things get dicey, when things get uncomfortable, a brother shows himself. It's not when everything's good that a brother shows himself to be a brother. What effort does it take to go chink beers at the barbecue but when everything's going miserably and they are standing there with you and supporting you that's that's the sentiment of this proverb that a brother is born for adversity and i think that in truth there's just even even more of a granule a simple granule of christian truth here that we're going to see adversity in our brothers and sisters in christ in the in their lives and in their experiences and we we I mean, very rarely can we actually concretely help. 
and hope in this way or that in some circumstances, but often not, and often you can't offer any relief, so you simply don't abandon them. Just endure with them. That's a lot of, I think, our basic brotherhood. In the same way that faith is so gloriously inglorious in that the scriptures regularly just refer to it as enduring. (laughs) Just enduring. Just let the rain hit you on the head. Let the winds batter your face. Let it all go bad. God is still God. Christ is still Christ. You are still his. Endure in the faith, even while it all falls apart. That's that, That's the calling. And then the calling of brotherhood would be parallel to that. And Christian friendship would be parallel to that. To stand with each other, endure with each other, correct each other, love one another. Even when you can't help and even when it's all going right into the the toilet or the grave or whatever it is. Yeah. Please. There's, uh, on issues, I heard recently, there's a quote from the conference from Mark Hemingway, who says, unless you have someone you completely trust and can argue with, you're not doing it right. Mm, yeah, interesting. Interesting. I, I suspect my, I mean, my only caveat there, I think, would be, and born from some experience, and you might have resonant experiences, that the only one he can truly trust is God. <laughs> so, entrust yourself to others in a relative way. And in some cases, you, you do have to entrust yourselves to others in ways that would lead to your profound downfall. I mean, any, any man of any age who's entertaining marriage is putting all his earthly self in his wife's hands because the government stands behind her ready to help her destroy her husband. And that's, I mean, that's why, I don't know what it is, 70-some percent of divorces in Orange County or higher are initiated by women. Why is that? It's a no-lose proposition. So men, men looking at, and young men looking at marriage, and this is something you've got to understand, what is the incentive for young men to get married? Great, if she decides not to love me, she can take half my stuff. Or more. Uh, it's not an incentive to marriage. Why, so what if I don't marry her? I get to keep my stuff if she decides to leave. So uh, there, there is then a call that if you're going to be married as a male in this day and age, much more could be said. But at minimum, you need to entrust yourself into the hands of your beloved in a relative way. Vetted you, and I trust you insofar as it goes, but anytime you want to destroy my life, the state's going to help you do that. And then you need to have an even deeper, your absolute trust put on God, that even if that kind of betrayal were to happen, he would have your back and be with you. So that's kind of what I mean and fleshing that out in a particular circumstance that's just egregious right now and completely upside down right now in our culture. Why on earth would any young man want to get married? The states utterly disincentivize that. Why do you think that is? Please. I don't know if you've heard Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank, but he has a lot of businesses that have to do with weddings. And he says... I always cry at weddings because a man is giving at least half of his wealth away. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, once upon a time, it made sense, but doesn't anymore. I understand why those laws are there originally. They made perfect sense. If you're going to expect a, a wife to raise children and not make a living and not have skills and, a, and abilities by which she could support herself, then, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense for laws to offer her protections. But as soon as you bring in no-fault divorce, that's an abomination and a scourge. As soon as you bring that in, all, all bets are off. So this marriage is governed in the civil estate. It's not a churchly estate. It's a civil estate. And it's a failure on the government to rightly order this. And, of course, it's leading to disaster and the disintegration of the family. That's exactly what the state wants. Because the state ultimately wants to be your boyfriend. That's, that's what the state wants. The state wants men to be the slaves. The state will be the husband. And you, you, can, you can pretend to be, you can be pseudo-husband as long as you behave. But as soon as the state or the wife decides that you're not behaving, you just become the slave labor, and the truth is revealed that the state is really married to the bride and has interjected itself into the family. Well, this is the toxic environment in which we live. May as well call it out. May as well call a spade a spade. And then you'll understand, too, like why it is that you're bugging your boys, your grand boys, not to, you know, why aren't you finding a nice girl and settling down? Here's part of it. And the other part of it is they can't find a job that'll pay for a house. So it's a little upside down. Okay, where are we at? I, did, I see a, did I see a hand or a microphone? I'm at, oh yeah, please. I wish you would have said it, then you could have taken the heat. All right, well, a little faster next time, but thank you for, yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, so on to, uh, yeah, we need to be, as Christians, we need to be friends and brothers, thick and thin. And we need to have thick skin. You know, we're going to bend each other out of shape. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to hurt each other. Um, man, I don't know what the... It's like for decades in the church. It's like, I got my feelings hurt by one person, so I left the church. Really? Really? I mean, to use Paul's analogy, like... You stumbled and your toe kicked your Achilles tendon and that hurt, and so you're going to literally sever yourself from the body and waddle off as if that doesn't hurt more? That's just absurd. We have to regain thick skin, and we have to regain an ability to uh, tolerate each other and bear each other's burdens. And when people in the church hurt us, just, you know, deal with it, get over it, let it go, address it. But you know, this whole business of we're just going to abandon ship the second I get my ego impinged is, uh, yeah, that's got to go. That's got to go. The church is going to be lean and mean, probably by the end of my ministry. <laughs> would that I would stay lean and mean. We'll see if that happens. So, yeah, friendship and brotherhood. In all times, good and bad, and especially in adversity. 18, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. All right, so this one is, um, yeah, if you look down, there's a little linguistic thing going on. If you look down at the study note, literally clasps hands as when shaking hands to confirm a deal. So hastily made promises and trapped the foolish who commit themselves to vows they have neither the ability nor determination to keep. So that's really 
better put than I could put it in terms of the sense of this. It's not saying that universally we shouldn't give pledges, although there is some caveat there from Christ, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But not all pledges are wrong. What's really in view here is one who lacks sense, just making all kinds of promises he can't keep, writing checks he can't cash. That's the sentiment here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, sure. Yeah. Just in a really earthly kind of sense, uh, yeah, don't co-sign on people's loans. That's for sure. That's a good way to end up paying it all yourself, I think. Maybe for your kids, because you have some leverage there. But I don't know. Okay. Oh, yeah, please. Um, one, yeah, sorry to make you do the, the big run here. It looks like we've got a couple hands, though, so it'll be some efficiency. Just a thought, because in today's gospel lesson of picking up the man naked and in trouble and giving him security. What if that man was talking about bad about Jesus the day before, saying what a fool he was and whatever, and you come along and you help this person, and the person even, and Jesus told him even, I guess the guy said that, Talking about the good Samaritan. Yeah. Yeah. So what if taking care of this Yeah, yeah. So whatever uh here's the two denarii and then here's kind of the blank check of whatever. Yeah, I don't think that our Lord is giving this as particular financial advice. Yeah. <laughs> I I think he's really showing his own fulfillment of the scriptures and the law that what it means to truly love God and neighbor is to show mercy and to show that mercy in the extreme. Christ's point in context is this nomikos, this expert in the scriptures or expert in the law is accusing Jesus' entire ministry of being contrary to the law. And he's showing how it's perfectly in harmony with the law. And indeed, the essence of the law is such showing mercy. So the rest is just kind of details. And I think not to be applied in specific instances, right, necessarily. Mm-hmm. And we, we, yeah, I don't know. We, you can kind of, you can certainly use that text to condemn yourself for not being as loving or as merciful as Jesus, right? You can certainly use a text like the Good Samaritan to say, okay, well, why don't you stop and pick up the hitchhiker at 11 p.m. at night when you're running home from Ralph's? Because I don't want to get murdered. (laughs) And you can look and see maybe the fearlessness and selflessness of the... uh, of the Good Samaritan, and you can say, you know, okay, I fall short of that, and fine, maybe that's a fine reflection to have. But I wouldn't necessarily go, I wouldn't necessarily think that Jesus is saying you need to constantly put yourself in harm's way in order. I don't think that that's the meaning of the Good Samaritan. Again, it's this where context is so important and not really going beyond the text and extrapolating all these things, because in context, the whole point is. The expert in the scriptures wants to show that Jesus' whole ministry to sinners is contrary to the scriptures. 
He's befriending the enemies of God. And Jesus' whole point is, no, what I am doing is in fulfillment of the scriptures. I am showing mercy to the enemies of God. Um, Pastor, for uh, what it's worth, I, I always felt like I was the guy on the side of the road um, in that story. And when Chris and I stumbled into a Lutheran church in Missouri, um, this couple, Karen and Tim, took us under their wing. And we, we weren't German farmers. We weren't Lutherans. <laughs> you know, we were... We had been saying bad stuff about Jesus, but we were uh, naked and hurt. And, you know, and so and not that we'd been proclaiming bad stuff, but our lives reflected that. So just for whatever that's worth. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What wonderful encouragement to look out for newcomers and look out for people hurting. And of, of course, it's a it's a bit of a platitude and a trope, but it's nonetheless true, worth having in mind. That's that everybody's going through something. I, I think aren't we all that dead person by the side of the road that Christ oh, yeah. is saving oh, yeah. and covering and paying for everything? Yeah. I mean, just to kind of relate to your situation, no matter if our righteousness is as you guys filthy are stealing rags. all my thunder for <laughs> the ten thirty service. No, that's very well said. Exactly right. Exactly right. We once saw a very interesting play where they played the story of the Good Samaritan five times. And in each case, Christ was represented in each of the different characters. Mm, mm, yeah, weird. Uh, I, there's, um, yeah, clearly as the Good Samaritan, I think that's what he's doing, saying, I am that Good Samaritan. And then he's telling the, the Namakas, you go and do likewise. Right? Like if, if you would truly fulfill the word of God and the law of God, if you would truly love God and neighbor, then do what I'm doing. Join me, in effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. There is a way in which you can see the rhetoric. I mean, Christ is so brilliant, just off the charts brilliant. I just stop and think of all the different angles that he's woven into. And, uh, but one of, the, one of the details that he weaves in that viewed, again, from the angle of the, the Namakas, the expert in the scriptures, as he meditates upon this exchange with Jesus for who knows how long, probably the rest of his life in one way, shape, or form. Um, who is it that is stripped? I mean, and notice the ordering. Usually, like, I mean, you've got to think like a criminal here. Wouldn't you beat somebody up, then strip them when they're all docile? But what does Jesus put in? Stripped then beaten, then left for dead, which happens to be an exact description of his own passion. So the Namakas, in thinking himself so much holier than Jesus, and Jesus is a heretic, and he's there to prove it to the world, he will, in effect, see Jesus himself in that very state and not lift a finger to help. So at least in those two roles... I've got no problem seeing with Christ, even though, uh, seeing Christ and meditating on that concept, and I see the validity of that woven within. Seeing him as the uh, the priest and the Levite, maybe not so much. Trotting on by, <laughs> that'd be bad. <laughs> Lord, help me. Zoom. You got no hope when Jesus passes you up. 
All right. Anything else? Yeah, there's a hand and a couple hands. We'll, we'll get it. We'll get what we can get here. It seems to me the the Good Samaritan passage, the uh, the teacher of the law was looking for a loophole. Right. Uh, love your neighbors yourself. Oh, but who's my neighbor? Oh, stay tuned. I don't think so. Stay you don't think he was looking for a loophole? No, stay tuned. We'll see if my sermon convinces you. Okay, okay. If, if not, we'll... Let me, yeah. let me finish my statement. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, you yeah. can we'll... rip it apart here if you want. Go for it. Um, it seemed to me he was looking for a loophole. Okay. And uh, Jesus then said, you know, gave him a story that said, no, nah, there's no loopholes, dude. And, and uh, you know, this, this is a, a, right, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. It's hard. Yeah. And... Um, it seems to me we look at that. And you mentioned earlier, you know, oh, yeah, I don't want to pick up the hitchhiker because I don't want to get killed. And what this just shows is that there's going to be times in the world where we can't do the law. It's a fallen world. And there'll be times that we're just driven to sin and we have to flee to the cross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a fine reflection on it. Yeah, I think that's a fine reflection on it. I mean, because it, it is true, even if I don't think that's what Jesus is up to, it is nonetheless true. There, we see our insufficiency to do for others what Christ has done for us. You know, I mean, how many hitchhikers are you going to pick up before you, you do get murdered? <laughs> right? right, and you, you, you can't, but at the same time, you ought to. Right? Sometimes the law tells us things we ought to do that we can't do. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe. Well, I mean, that's definitely true, that the law tells us to do things that we cannot do. It's definitely true. And maybe it's more complicated whether you pick up a hitchhiker or not in, in view of your uh, duties under the law unto those who are close of kin. You have a duty to protect yourself and take care of yourself so you can take care of them. So we could, we could quibble about that Pharisee style, but I think your main point that we just uh, we can't do the law is... Welcome to a fallen world. Yeah, absolutely right. All right, uh, that's going to be it. The Lord be with you.